not just that he was scandalous in some of the stuff that he was advocating, everything from the overthrow of the monarchy to free access to contraception, but it's also that you do so at great personal risk. You're listening to episode 49 of the National Secular Society podcast, produced by Emma Park. The term secularism was coined by George Jacob Holyoke in 1851. By this time, however, Britain's tradition of radicals and freethinkers was already well established, but the major actors of its early years are little known today. In this episode, I will be exploring the origins of secularism in the 18th and 19th centuries. I will be asking why political radicalism was associated with atheism and freethought at this time, and why secularism eventually declined as a political force. This podcast is designed to complement a recent NSS seminar on George Jacob Holyoke, led by Ray Argyle, who has just published a new biography about him. I'm going to be joined by three guests for a virtual roundtable discussion. My first guest, Paul Fitzgerald, is a political cartoonist, activist and graphic novelist, also known as Pollock. Paul is currently working on a graphic novel retelling the life of Thomas Paine, the 18th century philosopher and revolutionary, who was born in Norfolk in 1737 and emigrated to America just before the War of Independence. Not long after Paine's death in 1809, his controversial book The Age of Reason was republished in England by Richard Carlyle, a journalist and campaigner for press freedom. For this and other offences, Carlyle was sentenced to imprisonment for blasphemy. My second guest, Owen Carter, is writing his PhD on Carlyle and his collaborators and their interest in science as an agent for social revolution. The work done by radicals like Paine and Carlyle contributed to the emergence of secularism in the mid-19th century as a working-class political force opposed to organised religion. By the turn of the century, secularism in its turn was being sidelined by socialism and the labour movement. My third guest, Matthew Kidd, has just written a book on this topic entitled The Renewal of Radicalism, Politics, Identity and Ideology in England, 1867 to 1924. Owen, Paul and Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hello. 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 Let's start, first of all, with a little bit of background. Paul, could you take us off by giving us a little potted history of, of Paine and Thomas Paine? Where did he come from? What were his motivations? Where did he end up? Sure. I mean, he was um, somebody who was born uh, basically in a working class family in Norfolk, uh, who, who really didn't seem to sort of have any intellectual impact until he moved to America. He met Benjamin Franklin in London and uh, moved over to America just at the time that the American War of Independence was kicking off. And that seemed to create an explosion of, uh, of, of writing and ideas coming from Paine. Um, his, his arguments that, that in fact, America should separate from from England. Just galvanized people, even like Washington and uh, and Jefferson, who up until then hadn't really felt that that was the right route. He seemed to really galvanize them, and this seems to have been his record ever since. Uh, with common sense, and obviously, particularly relevant to this podcast, is the Age of Reason, where he seemed to pull together the first large scale resistance to, I think, um, to fundamentalist religion rather than to religion itself. But I think one of the most significant things for me about him is that he's been forgotten. It's absolutely astonishing. This guy who sparked the American War of Independence was one of the first real people to stand up against religious um, authority. He's just gone from popular history. Oh, and what about Carlyle? Because he's also someone who's perhaps slightly forgotten. This is really a theme of the investigations which we in the NSS are doing at the moment into the early history of secularism. 
What what was Richard Carlyle's background and what were his sort of main contributions um, to the development of, of radicalism and free thought? Thanks, Emma. So um, in common with quite a lot of working class uh, reformers of this period, Carlyle was, he was born into fairly humble circumstances. Uh, he was born in Devon in 1790. He was the son of a shoemaker, that kind of infamous radical trade. Uh, but the father walked out on the family when Richard was just very young. So he was raised with two sisters by his mother, Elizabeth, and had, by the standards of the time, as kind of a good an education as one could really hope for. But by that, we mean a bit of Sunday school and a bit of uh, charity school afterwards. So he got his basic literacy. He got a lot of Bible time and not a lot else. Um, after that, at age 12, he took up the trade of a tinsmith, uh, you know, a very hard itinerant trade, something that was on the way out, uh, but something that was to stay with him for the rest of his life. He was very consciously proud of his working class origins and having raised himself from that. Then later on, um, he eventually ends up in London in around 1817. And this is kind of at the height of post-war agitation. Finally, all of this energy, which has been restrained after two decades of war in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, is suddenly, it, it's beginning to bubble over. It can't be held back anymore. There's a series of mass meetings uh, being led by Henry Hunt with tens of thousands of people across the country. Um, Carlyle begins to fall into this radical scene. Uh, he starts selling radical pamphlets, and then shortly he begins writing and editing a radical journal published by a man called William Sherwin. And then on the back of this, he uh, is invited to attend the mass meeting at St. Peter's Field in Manchester in 1819. And this is the event which will mark really the rest of his life and the fate of radicalism through the remainder of the century, because it is, of course, the site of the Peterloo Massacre. Why is the Peterloo Massacre so important for radicalism in the 19th century? I might uh, jump in there as, um, as the chair of the Peterloo Memorial Campaign here in Manchester. Um, it's, it's the turning point in, in the story of both English and, and global democracy. Uh, and even though it kind of failed uh, in the short term, I think the shock it produced really, really helped push the democracy agenda forward. It, it happened just down the road from where I'm sat now. Owen, would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a pivotal moment of uh, trauma and betrayal that really echoes down the century. You have, you know, 50,000 people assembled in their Sunday best calling peaceably for reform, and they're charged by armed cavalrymen and, you know, slaughtered. There's, what, 18 people dead, hundreds more injured. It's a bloodbath, and it seems to kill off any prospect of peaceful reform for the near future. If a government is willing to do that to crush dissent, what hope is there? It's a very, very dispiriting period, and I will colour absolutely everything in the generations that follow. Payne and Carlyle, of course, are early radicals in England and then America for Payne and, and England for Carlyle. But after that, we, we have the sort of secularists fitting in in the mid-19th century, and then we move towards socialism and the rise of the Labour Party in the late 19th century. Matthew, you recently wrote a book on the renewal of radicalism uh, about politics in the late 19th to early 20th century. You started in 1867. Why did you choose that year to begin your book? 
Um, the main reason was because this was the year in which the second Reform Act was passed. This was an act that enfranchised a, a large portion of the male working class population. Um, and in some constituencies, particularly in some of the mining constituencies, this gave working class men enough clout to send trade unionists to Parliament for the first time, which they did in uh, the general election of the following year. So in that respect, it's an important year and a, an important moment in British political history. If we think about the later development of the Labour Party, this idea that Labour representation or direct Labour representation um, by trade unionists in Parliament, this actually happened 30 odd years before, and that was thanks to the Reform Act. I also picked the mid-1860s as a starting point because there was a lot of heightened radical agitation and excitement at this time. Radicals were involved in numerous campaigns and causes at this time, including support for the North in the American Civil War, support for foreign nationalist movements in places like Italy and Poland, trade unionism, and of course, uh, the foundation of the National Secular Society in 1866. So, Matthew, how would you define radicalism and, and where did the National Secular Society and the secularist movement fit into radicalism? I think if the way that radicalism was used as a term in the 19th century is probably different to how we'd use it today. We tend to use it as a way to describe anything outside the mainstream. And I'm not sure if my, my fellow speakers would agree with me, but I think in the 19th century, even though it's the terms left and right weren't used so much in political discourse at the time, Radicals at the time would have been seen as on the extreme left or at least the extreme left of the Liberal Party or maybe just outside. That's a debate that I engage with in my book. Um, but basically, radicals were anyone who advocated radical reform of the political system. Um, radical actually comes from the Latin word, I think, radix or radic. My Latin isn't very strong, but um, which means root. So it's very much this idea that any problem, any political or social problem, we need to strike at the root of it. Um, and, and reform it fundamentally and, and a quicker pace than perhaps moderate liberals would would argue for. And the secularist movement? The secularist movement, I mean, there's again debate about how that fits in. For me, secularism was just one of the many expressions of radicalism at the time. As I said, that there were various different ways in which radicals engaged in the political and social life of, of the country. Um, and in many respects, they were seen as in advance, they wanted to be in advance of moderate liberalism. And that could mean not just favoring gradual political reform, but actually radical reform. That could mean not just um, removing some of the powers of the Lords, but abolishing the Lords. And I would argue that the secularism must be seen in the same way, in that this wasn't just about fighting against the established church for nonconformity, but actually going one step further, perhaps, and thinking about the whole idea of religion and its role in public life, but also whether there is a God, for example. Um, and shoemakers were at the forefront of this, as one of my fellow speakers already mentioned. Owen, oh, uh, would you agree with that in terms of that idea of radicalism um, as far as it applied to Carlyle and the early radicals and free thinkers? Uh, yes, I think Matthew's very nicely raised the point that radical, um, at least in the earlier sense of you know, root and branch reform, going right to the core of something. You know, this is, the word had been used in that sense from the, I think, the 17th century onwards. But it's it's in the 1820s in Britain, specifically in response to dealing with the fallout of Peterloo and the hardening of attitudes, which is following on other sides, which leads to it kind of becoming radicalism with a capital R. 
And while it would never attain, say, the level of a uh, parliamentary party or really even a parliamentary grouping, we might think of it perhaps as, say, a tendency rather than an ideology. What would probably unite radicals of all stripes, at least in the 1820s, would be a loathing for what they called old corruption. This idea that there's some kind of nexus of aristocratic power, which has basically stitched everything up together. So monarchy and the aristocracy and the established religion are all of a parcel and they're all scratching each other's backs. And that if you want to tackle one, you really need to tackle all. What sort of a radical was Carlyle? Oh, he was an ultra radical. He was, uh, there was none more, at least in his own view. He had this uh, paradoxical experience in some ways in which, so trials had actually been, or prosecutions, I should say, had been begun against him earlier on in 1819. He had already drawn the ire of the authorities through reprinting, among other things, the works of Thomas Paine and the Age of Reason in particular. Then Peter Lou happens. It's Carlyle's eyewitness testimony which provides the radical account to that. And then in reprisal, the government resume those prosecutions with interest and he's jailed for what will ultimately be six years for blasphemy. So what happens then is that despite being imprisoned, he's able to continue his publishing business. He runs it remotely, directing and submitting copy through the post. And because the authorities are loath to interfere overtly with the sanctity of the postal system, he's able to get away with it despite being banished to rural Dorset. Um, And so what happens then is Paradoxically, he ends up slightly liberated because he's already in prison, but he can kind of publish what he likes. And so he begins to get harder and harder in the stuff that he says. So he shifts from a a critique of all corruption to the journal is called The Republican. The aim is explicit there. He begins to harden his attitudes, um, moving from, let's say, a kind of free thinking or deistic tradition to outright atheism and materialism. And, and republicanism associated and with republicanism. it. Why were the shoemakers particularly um, radical? Should I jump in on the shoemakers? Um, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, I, I didn't realise that, that they were one of the trades that um, were promoting this kind of radicalism. But one of my favourite scenes in the, in the Thomas Paine graphic novel I'm, I'm writing is that the upper classes who you know were just totally preoccupied with vilifying pain, they would quite often go to their shoemakers and insist on having what were called TP nails put in the heels of their shoes, where the um, the nails put into the into the heel would spell out the, the letters TP so that they could spend their days treading on Tom Paine's ideas. <laughs> on the question of shoemakers, it's actually, it's uh, it's one of the longer standing puzzles in social history. Uh, at one point, the uh, legendary historian Eric Hobsbawm actually devoted an entire essay to trying to tackle this question, um, because it's a phenomenon that plays out not just in Britain, but actually across Europe, is that whoever you are, if you're a shoemaker, you're likely more likely to be involved in some kind of dissent or discontent. I think the answer that he came up with is that it was ultimately, it's a trade that you can conduct quite quietly, the materials aren't overly expensive. It leads itself to having a lot of time for reading and discussing in a small shop. And everyone's got to buy their shoes somewhere. So you're quite well positioned to get the local gossip. So you can maintain your independence in a way. Yeah, you can be a a small master, but in contact with others as well. So particularly well connected. 
Yes, a lot of my research, the book is actually based on some case studies and it was not a coincidence that most of the places, Leicester, Northampton, that I based the case studies on were um, centres of the boot and shoe trade. And again, I read that Hobsbawm article and it was very much a puzzle. I actually came across an article from the 1890s by a, the, the shoemaking union trying to answer this question and that they couldn't really answer it. But it was very much, you've got to remember that the mechanization of that industry was quite late compared to some others. So it was the 1890s when they lost a big lockout. That was when the manufacturers started to impose things like discipline that we think today in the workplace. It's hard to believe, but in the early 1890s, shoemakers could come and go in the factories whenever they wanted. They could do as much work on a daily basis as they wanted. It was basically piecework. And uh, there was something very famous called St. Monday where they'd They'd, say they'd work so hard during the rest of the week so they didn't have to go in Monday so they could go and drink beer. So this, this kind of autonomy and freedom that they had, even as late as the 1890s, um, this article from the 1890s suggests that it was that freedom, that sitting around in a factory on your own, there isn't much managerial oversight telling you off for speaking and swearing and talking and discussing. Some people would take newspapers in and read it to the other. There was that kind of introspection, I suppose, that allowed them to become... Um, all of them politicians, as one of Northampton's MPs called them. Well, and, and Northampton was, of course, um, the, the centre for, well, Northampton was Charles Bradlaugh's constituency. Uh, moving back to pain, uh, Paul, we mentioned The Age of Reason, which was, of course, Paine's big um, book, um, critique of organised religion and his advocacy of deism. What exactly were his views about organised religion and how did his experiences in England, America and France influence them? Yeah, I mean, this this is one of the things that I've found fascinating about Payne. Uh, I mean, he, he kind of has really drawn me in. But being a sort of fairly militant atheist myself, I'm fascinated to, to see that, it, that, as you say, he was a deist. He very much believed in a god. And one of his concerns about the direction that the French Revolution that he was involved with uh, was going was that he felt it was becoming more atheist, which he thought was a, a very bad thing. I guess the only conclusion I can come to is is that Paine was an opponent of religious fundamentalism rather than religion itself, and of course the the, the churches in America and and Europe were were all at that time fundamentalist. Mm. They were certainly very much you know he criticizes priestcraft, doesn't he? Um, and yeah, attacks organized religion which intend uh, which attempts to impose itself um, on people. Sure. I mean, what he what he seemed most disgusted with was the idea of uh, of revelation of of these individuals saying, uh, you know, I magically have been given the word of God, and it's not just the word of God; it's the word of God, and everybody else is wrong. And Payne, you know, with this incredibly modern voice in uh, in Age of Reason, sort of says, "Well, why why should we believe you?" I mean, he's asking these really simple questions that that, that atheists today are still. Um, are still using in, in, in debates with the religious people, he sort of said, no, uh, if there is a testimony, if there is a, a, you know, a, a, a manuscript that God has written, it's very much the universe. Mm. And, and this is already sufficiently radical to get him in trouble with the authorities. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, prosecutions, I mean, he'd already um, uh, had a sentence against him for the rights of man, for his political views. Uh, and then Age of Reason not only brought the authorities down on him again, such that he could never go back to England. 
it also alienated loads and loads of, of other people who would have considered themselves radicals or progressives who, who turned on him. Uh, even the guy who had defended him, Erskine, the famous lawyer who defended Payne for rights of man and, and done a brilliant job of it, turned against him and prosecuted him, or rather prosecuted this impoverished guy who normally sold religious tracts, but who had sold one copy of Age of Reason. Owen, on that topic, um, one of the things that you, you've mentioned that Carlyle was um, one of the charges against him that the authorities used to get him imprisoned after Peterloo was that he had republished um, Paine's Age of Reason. How did Paine's thoughts about religion influence Carlyle? Uh, utterly, almost to the point of uh, veneration, I would say. So uh, Paine was to be the lodestar by which Carlyle tried to uh, live his life in a lot of ways. He was among the first authors that Carlyle began publishing and republishing the works of, and he would continue that all through the rest of his publishing career. He would cite him explicitly, um, you know, if you don't know what to do, read Thomas Paine. And yet for all that, Carlyle's own religious views, they meandered around over the course of his career. I think that's one thing we need to say is that if we're talking about Carlyle and religion, there are, there are many Carlyles. He started off from a position in his adult life of a distrust of established religion, which then hardens into deism, then the experience of imprisonment t tilts him into outright atheism. But then after that, he takes another turn again and begins pursuing a quite idiosyncratic personal understanding of allegorical Christianity, by which, depending on what mood he's in, um, stories about Christ, for example, are actually stories about human reason. The logos is, through a series of historical corruptions, actually proved that there was a pre-Christian worship of reason, for example. So lo lots of different ideas floating about there. Yeah, and then by the end of his career, he was effectively in a church of one, you know, calling himself a Christian, but you'd have been well-placed to find anyone who would agree with that sentiment. So I guess for both Payne and Carlyle, in a way, what distinguished them was they were just prepared to think independently and speak independently um, from the established orthodoxies. Very much so, yeah. What was Carlyle's significance for the secularist movement in Britain? Owen, perhaps we can start with you on this. I mean, of course, his common law wife, um, Eliza Sharples, um, gave lodging to Charles Bradlaugh, the future first president of the NSS, when Bradlaugh was 16. Um, but how did Carlyle's thought and, and his example influence Bradlaugh and other secularists? Uh, well, I'd say he was both a cause celebre and a cautionary tale at the same time. Uh, against the uh, apparent unjustness and tyranny of the extremely restrictive laws that were ushered in after Peterloo, because we mustn't forget those. It's not just a massacre, it's also a stifling environment uh, in, which crushes a lot of the life out of dissent. So he is a, you know, the most strident, most fierce voice and most fierce critic of that regime through the 1820s. For all that, his example is not one that many people are inclined to follow. Because if you're prepared to spend a decade in prison, you know, more power to you. But a lot of people, frankly, aren't. So it's not just that he was scandalous in some of the stuff that he was advocating, you know, everything from the overthrow of the monarchy to free access to contraception, the abolition of marriage as uh, tyrannous to women. Um, but it's also that you do so at great personal risk. So when you have uh, another generation of reformers coming after, for example, George Jacob Holyoke, 
a great deal has to be done to try and rehabilitate the idea of free thought to try, if you want to make it politically respectable, you know, whatever personal private respect you may have for Carlyle's sacrifice, as it were, you do not want to associate with that brand too publicly. Mm. Well, as we learned from um, Raya Argyle's book launch uh, the other day at, on, at Conway Hall Online, one of the points that emerged was that Holyoke was um, quite concerned to make secularism and make free thought respectable. Exactly, yes. And Carlyle had left him with a, a fine piece of work to do there. <laughs> Matthew, moving on to the sort of mid to, to late 19th century, the figure of Charles Bradlaugh, I mean, he wasn't, do you think he was in a way more of a su successor of Carlyle in his willingness to court controversy? Yes, <laughs> basically. Um, it's the Carlyle issue is slightly outside my area of expertise, but just listening um, to my fellow speaker there, it, it definitely rung um, some bells in my mind about Bradlaugh. It sounded very similar to him. There was no coincidence that he often signed off as iconoclast, for example. One of the historians of Bradlaugh called him on the extreme wing of the extreme wing of the Liberal Party. And I think that neatly sums up where he was. He was never afraid of controversy. He was involved in in 1874, there were riots in Northampton after he lost an election. During the 1860s, um, he helped to provoke some uh, riots in Hyde Park around the reform agitation. Um, and even though that he, theoretically at least, was a constitutionalist, very much around peaceful action and change through the ballot box, that kind of thing, he had this habit of always being at these kind of places at the wrong time. Um, and his supporters definitely often went beyond the constitutionalist um, mode of thinking that he advocated. So I think that on those issues, but also on his thoughts on free thought and getting involved in legal cases around the right to free expression and the right to the freedom of the press and that kind of thing, there definitely seems to be a similar, a striking similarity between him and Carlyle, I think. Paul, for, for Payne, how, how did radical politics link to his views about religion? I, I mean, I think it was part of just his his thinking uh, that, that people should be free to have whatever opinion they want. I mean, he did actually, as I say, uh, disapprove of, of atheism, but I think he, he very much respected everybody's right to have their own opinion. You know, I mean, that's one of the things he says in the introduction uh, to Age of Reason. So I think it is kind of tied up with his ideas of freedom. But as I say, you know, underneath that is a kind of pain suspicion that, uh, that that full atheism is actually going to be destructive to society is one of those people who felt that, you know, not in quite such a militant way as his critics, but he, I think he did feel that, that a belief in a deity held morality together. It's absolutely fascinating for me to hear this discussion, a sort of triangle between Carlyle, Peterloo, and pain, because, of course, you know, we all know that, that, that Carlyle was at Peterloo and, and was very much involved in, in the, the fight against the six acts afterwards. But 1819 is the year that a slightly um, bizarre uh, uh, radical Cobbett dug up Payne's remains in America and brought them over to uh, England, to, to Manchester, specifically because of Peterloo. He thought that Payne's remains would uh, would galvanise a resistance that had been quite suppressed by Peterloo. And, and did they have any effects doing that? <laughs> well, no, the, 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 the remains were stopped uh, on the outskirts of Salford, the, the sort of in town of Manchester at the time. And, uh, yeah, a line of soldiers refused to let them into the... Um, into the city they were due to go to a dinner of all things uh, 
but yeah, then that's partly how they got lost. Cobbett uh, uh, ended up taking them down south, and 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 they they disappeared afterwards. Owen, for Carlyle, how did his views about religion? Well, obviously, you said he sort of changed them from time to time. But how did his hostility towards the organized church link to his radical politics? So I would say, for Carlyle, he views it very much as all of a piece. It's it's a war on all fronts that must be won. And so you're tackling religion and especially established religion at the same time that you're tearing down monarchy and the aristocracy um, and establishing republics worldwide, ideally. There's a there's a kind of there's a universalism to his republicanism, which is something that he inherits, or certainly feels that he inherits, from pain. Matthew, how far did radical politics, say, in, in the mid to late 19th century, how far was it associated with free thought, with atheism, with radical views about religion as well as politics? I think um, the fortunes of the secularist movement ebbed and flowed in line with the radical movement. So there were times when, um, as I said, in the 1860s, perhaps when the NSS was founded, this was a time of um, radical agitation on numerous issues and it's always been an eclectic movement in this time um but something i did want to say when we talk about the link between radical politics and, and free thinking is that more broadly in this time religion and politics were intertwined there wasn't this um, deep politicization of religion that we have today it was very much and i don't want to generalize too much but if you were a non-conformist you were probably more likely to vote liberal if you're an anglican you were more likely to vote conservative and if you look at election manifestos from the 19th century particularly even going up to the late 19th century um there were issues that we today would consider religious issues that maybe have have been dealt with or that aren't aren't the place for politics to uh, to, to discuss so i think that's always important and radicals as the advanced thinkers in politics would have been seen as the advanced thinkers in religious matters as well. So I think that's quite an important um, thing to note as well. Um, in terms of how closely linked they were, I think that they were just two of many, if we think of free thought and secularism anyway, they were just two of many of the expressions of radicalism. The link was stronger in certain places than in others. So in Leicester, I would argue it was very, very closely linked. Um, the secularist movement there almost kept alive that post-Chartist enthusiasm for radicalism when after the defeat of Chartism in the 1840, late 1840s, it kind of went underground. It stayed alive in, in local secular clubs, clubs coming together, discussing these kind of issues. It was weaker in other places. Interestingly, secularism was quite weak in, or the NSS was quite weak in Northampton, which was unusual, even though that was the, the backbone of Bradwell's support. So. It wasn't, there wasn't a nice, neat connection, but I think that um, they definitely moved in parallel with one another. Having mentioned socialism, we should, of course, also remember that um, we needn't be talking about uh, Marxist socialism. There is also the what Engels would have diagnosed as utopian socialism associated with the philanthropic industrialist Robert Owen, uh, which was, you know, through the 1830s and 40s, a very important force for the later development of secularism. Holyoke, we've mentioned him before, he got his initial training as an Owenite social missionary. So when we're assessing the uh, the experience and the developments of later in the century, we've got to remember that there was an integrated political and secular program being pursued there, and which then failed uh, in a number of acrimonious breakdowns of these ideal communities. 
uh, with Carlisle sniping from the sidelines all the while saying, I told you so, you didn't listen to me. But Robert Owen um, wasn't necessarily an atheist himself, I believe. No, he wasn't. It's one of those really strong distinctions between the person and the followers. The Owenites certainly had a lot of um, outright atheists among them. This has been a really interesting discussion and we could talk about this all day, but let's just um, have a, few, a couple of final points. Um, firstly, um, Paul and then Owen, as far as Payne and Carlyle are concerned, do they still matter today? Or are they still relevant to Britain in the 21st century? Paul, what, what about Payne? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, I, I think partly because to some extent he's um, not an apolitical voice, but he's not he's not a kind of factional uh, voice uh, 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 arguing for reason and uh, and common sense. I think that's that's one of the things that's that's fascinating about him. But I think also, you know, as kind of Sagan predicted, we are heading into this era now where irrationality seems to be getting a much stronger grip on society again after after sort of receding for quite a long time. And of course, I include in that religious fundamentalism. So I think Payne's very, very fresh modern voice is one that we should be rediscovering, as well as just the justice of of him not being forgotten, given his impact on uh, on history. Oh, and what about Richard Carlyle? What, what's his legacy? Is he still important today? Oh, I, I think in some ways he's more important today than he has been in quite some time. Uh, what I mean by that is that um, quite strikingly, and perhaps in distinction to um, some of his peers from that kind of era and subsequent generations, uh, he was absolutely forward-focused in his view. It wasn't just about defending old liberties, for example. It wasn't, a, uh, if you like, a kind of a local radicalism. Uh, but as he inherited from Paine, it was universalist in his vision. And also, and I think this is something that really marks him out, uh, he was in love with the promise of science. I think we're in an era now where, you know, whether it's thinking on the on the global level with regards to the power of the climate crisis or on a deeply personal level, do we actually possess free will? Can we image the brain and begin to see how human beings actually come to the decisions that they think they make? His, his kind of idiosyncratic brand of scientifically motivated materialism there would absolutely seize on everything that's under discussion in uh, the problems of our modern world. And in some ways, this is a, it's almost like a, a running of the tape beforehand. We've seen what happens. He built an entire uh, ethical system, a program for revolution on the idea that science is going to drive us forward. So, I mean, he would certainly have a lot to say today if he were still alive. Finally, Matthew, do you think that um, the relationship between um, religion and radical politics as such is sort of closer or further apart? We, we talked about, um, you know, secularism and, and politics in general, but what about specifically radical politics? Do you think that issues of religion are, are of greater or less interest to people campaigning for radical change in the 21st century than they were, say, in the mid or late 19th century? That's a big question. I think that um, probably less so. I think that um, and this is maybe slightly off topic, but I think that the the changing nature of, of socialism um, within the Labour Party and maybe just outside the Labour Party through the 20th century um, took religion out of, of the question. Um, 
following on from we talked about Robert Owen earlier in the late 19th century a lot of socialism was a kind of religion in many ways um, people like Keir Hardy was very religious he said that he got all his ideas from Jesus and that kind of thing you wouldn't hear a, a leader of the Labour Party say that today no. um, Tony Blair almost did right <laughs> very true it depends who which voters they were talking to I suppose. Um, but yes so I, I think that further away I think that the kind of socialism that um, fed into the Labour Party, particularly du during the 30s onwards, was a, a kind of, not necessarily Marxian, but definitely more of a, uh, a, a kind of um, materialistic form of socialism, where not necessarily atheism, but secularism was stronger than it had been in the 19th century. And I think that's definitely had an influence, this idea of a separation between politics and religion. Um, obviously, that's not just the case in the Labour Party. There are other um, forms of radicalism today. But I think that you're more likely to find devout religious people in, in, in other forms, probably non-radical political parties um, today. Matthew, Owen and Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.